Hi, this is Miles Copeland, and you're listening to Follow Your Dream Podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is J.J. Gilmore, Scottish singer-songwriter. He made his recording debut in 1989 with The Silencers. I love that name. One of Scotland's most loved bands. After seven years with the silences, he left and he started to pursue a solo career, and he's now got five acclaimed albums. He's written the music for the show Dancing Shoes, based upon the life of footballer George Best, and it's played to over 70,000 people. He's also written the songs for the musical play The Titanic Boys, which had its debut at Belfast Grand Opera House. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, JJ and I are going to do a song fest. I'm going to play a handful of his best works. You'll hear the backstories and you'll find out stuff that you'll not find out anywhere else. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you know that I like to feature a song of mine under the introduction and at the end of every episode. And I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guests. Well, listen to this one. I've chosen the song in this instance that I wrote called New York City Groove from the album Made in New York by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I pick this? Well, JJ came to New York to record his debut solo album. So I thought that it worked. So, JJ Gilmore, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you, Robert. Nice to be here. Nice to be here. A good Scottish name as well, Robert. Well, listen, I'm loving listening to your brogue, okay? Because, you know, we don't hear that too much in New York City, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a different... Um, I think it gets tamed slightly over the years. But, um, yeah, it's still pretty strong. All right. Well, listen, I understand that you, during the pandemic, like me, started to do some different stuff. You know, we're all creative people. And when the pandemic hit, we couldn't do what we normally do. I started this podcast. I recorded two albums remotely, which I had never done before. I wrote a book that became a bestseller. I was probably more creative during the pandemic than at any other time. What did you do during the pandemic? Well, I mean, this area here that I'm in is my attic. And I, I, I saw it's, it's one of those things, I almost think if adversity is put in front of you, then, then you have to figure how to either get around it or get over it. So I thought I need to get around this or over it. And so I contacted a few pals or buddies, as you say, in America. And um, I said, look, I'm going to redo my whole attic. I'm going to turn it into a TV studio. The attic was lying dormant anyway. So I started a little TV studio up here. I put some cameras up here and some lights and all kinds of crazy stuff where we got on-air signs and 
little fairy lights that you can see. We brought Elvis into the room to make sure he was okay. Elvis did not leave the room, huh? He did not leave the room. Uh, and during the process of those concerts, I used to invite guests in to speak about lots of things like, you know, uh, mental health, bits of politics, um, how Boris Johnson's an idiot, uh, all of these <laughs> things. Uh, and somebody said, oh, you should do a little podcast. So I did about six or seven podcasts with, you know, football players or soccer players, as you call them in America. And people that I'd been involved with in the music industry, like one of my first interviews was with Miles Copeland, you know. So Miles managed me for six years. Uh, and so we did a, we did a, a podcast with him. And it, you know what? It's probably foolish to say that it ended because it didn't end. It's just that there's another chapter. I've converted one of these big Mercedes Sprinter vans into a, into one of these mobile homes, camper homes. Uh, and that's going to be, the podcast is going to be on wheels now. So I'm going to go to the people rather than the people coming to me. That's a very clever idea. A mobile podcast, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the next phase, Robert. All right. You're one step ahead of me if you're doing something like that. <laughs> I like that. Now, you mentioned football or soccer, as we call it. And you did this thing with George Best. And, you know, in the United States now, they're going crazy because they've got this guy named Messi. Oh, yeah. He's playing in the U.S. Are you a big fan of soccer, of football? Huge. Uh, I'm, uh, the Glasgow Celtic is my team. and um, But I remember that time with George going to, to, to L.A., San Diego. And I remember him... Um, I remember Pele playing for the Cosmos. I remember Franz Beckenbauer going to, to America. So this is almost like America's almost like reinventing itself again with, with soccer or you know or football, as we say. And I think the, the, the whole messy thing is reminiscent of Pele. It speaks the same language to me. You know, Pele was Brazilian, Messi's Argentinian, but it's the same thing again. The Americans have got this new surge, possibly helped by David Beckham. Uh, owning a team in America, um, but it's good to see it. I mean, we watched, we watched um, uh, during the World Cup. I watched America. I thought they were fantastic, as were Canada and Celtic. We played, we played a, a team last week that had a young American uh, in their team. And listen, America. The thing is, if it's like it's just the shape of the ball, isn't it? You know, NFL is. We I call rugby players egg chasers. Because the ball is the shape of an egg. Do you follow American football? I don't. I don't. I like it. I, I like the idea of it, but I don't. I've never been to a game. I went to. I went to a Canadian uh, final. I can't remember. I think they call it the the Grey Bowl or something like that in Canada. Grey Cup. Uh, the Grey Cup. Yeah, but I don't follow. I I I, I lived in New York for a while, and I, I should have went to a Yankees game. Yeah, you should have gone. Well, you know, it's interesting because so much of sports has now become international. I was in Boston when Pele came to the United States. That was 100 years ago. Yeah. And soccer or football, as, as you call it, was not popular at all in the U.S. at that time. It was, it was still probably number one in the rest of the world, but it wasn't popular in the U.S. Now, with younger generations, particularly in the U.S., playing that sport, it's become extremely popular. And the NFL has taken their game to Europe. They play a couple of matches or games in 
London, I believe, each year, maybe in some other places as well. Yeah. It's the internationalization of sports, just like music, right? Absolutely. I think America has got its only ever second Irish player. They just signed an Irish, it's one of the NFL teams signed an Irish kicker last week. And I think he's the only ever second Irish boy to ever play in the NFL. So that'll be amazing. I'm sure you're right about that. All right, let's go back a little bit. You were in the silences. I love that name because I'm thinking about him saying, you know, you're a musician, you're playing music, and yet you name the band the Silencers. Which, what was the idea to shut everybody up while you were playing? <laughs> I think, I mean, the the, the Silencers name came from, uh, and I wasn't part of this process, but it came from names had just gone into a hat, and, and basically the old, the great old movie with uh, uh, Dean Martin, the Silencers. Oh, is that where it came from? Yeah, one one of the guys loved that movie, so he. You know, a, a few names had gone into the hat, and that was one of them. And uh, and and that was the name that got drew out. Ironically, when the Silencers first tour of America, uh, there was also a band in the United States that was called the Silencers, and they sued the, the, the British Silencers successfully. I might add. You had dueling Silencers, huh? And a dueling of the Silencers. You were each trying to silence one another. I like that. Exactly. You know, <laughs> but but it, you know, it's a as it, it's a funny name. It's a contradiction, isn't it? Right. But it wasn't to do with the sound. It was to do with the old Dean Martin. But it's lent itself very well to the to to the to the band because there was lots of episodes and lots of interesting things, and it made it interesting and things like this and in interviews where people would ask, you know, what was the silence within the silencers. We get asked that all the time, you know, and one, I remember doing an interview in Italy one time. You'll not remember this band, but there was a band in the UK called The Levelers. And they were a kind of, they were almost like a new age travellers. And, uh, and we did this interview in Milan in, in Italy. It was about seven in the morning and it was live on MTV. And the girl kept asking questions about, Are you, do, does it feel good to be on a level? Which level do you think you belong are you guys all levelled up now? And I said, I'm really sorry. I, I don't understand your line of questioning. And she said, well, you are the levellers. <laughs> I said, no, we're the silencers. <laughs> oh, man. That's funny. You know, it's interesting to hear that you named the band after a movie because I did the same thing with my band. Project Grand Slam, I came out of a James Bond movie called Goldfinger. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. And there was a plot to destroy the gold in Fort Knox. That was the theme of this book and the movie. And I named the band Project Grand Slam because that was the name of the plot. Except, don't tell anybody this, but I got it wrong, okay? When I went back six months later and I watched the movie again, it was Operation Grand Slam. And I said, oh my God, what am I going to do ah. now? Because I named the band Project Grand Slam. And then I looked up Operation Grand Slam. I Googled it and I found out that there was some kind of like terrible despotic uh, regime in Africa that was named Operation oh. So I said, I'm glad I kept it at Project Grand Slam. Serendipity. All right. Anyway, that's my little vignette. So tell us about the silences. What was it like being in that band? You toured all over the place. Tell me about it. I mean, it was a band that, that 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 hit in some places and didn't hit in other places. Like a lot of things, geography plays its part in music. So for us, 
Uh, we became a household name in France and Spain and Switzerland. Uh, and it, there, there seemed to be a big European thing going on. So we were managed by the same guy who managed Simple Minds, a wonderful guy called Bruce Finlay. Uh, and Bruce, in his wisdom, had all, almost got uh, Simple Minds on a great level in America. So we were the we were the bridesmaids, if you like. So it was time for the bridesmaids to to, to stand up to the plate. And he did the exact same thing with us. He pushed us into America. The the band uh, toured initially in America with the Pretenders, the lovely Chrissy Hind, and uh, and then they went out on tour after that with uh, Squeeze. And you know what? It was somewhat successful. Some people liked the band. There was a following there, but it wasn't enough. Like a lot of British bands, it's very difficult to to conquer America or even or even to make an impact on America. For me personally, that's where rock and roll was invented. There's great, great bands in America. It's only what I think personally that when you go to America, you see the competition. It's different, you know, but I just, for me, they, they, they capture something else. Uh, and I think we were similar to, to, to other bands that were in America. So therefore, why do we need another band that sounds like another band, you know? And I, I'm not sure, but I think that, that may be the theory. Or maybe... The guy who was the head of BMG America was a guy called Hans Hines in New York at the, the time. And I think he kind of liked the band. And then I think he may have went off the band at some point. Sometimes it can be the record company. You know, I've had a lot of guys on the podcast that came out of the, the British invasion era, as we call it, yeah, yeah. In the 60s. That was my era when I came of age musically. And I've had a lot of guys on the show from that era, as I just mentioned. And they all said the same thing that you just said. America was like the golden place, okay? All the oh, absolutely came from America back to, to England. And it was so interesting because they took American blues, black American blues that really was underrepresented in the United States. They took it back to the UK, redid it, and gave it back to us. And then it became a big hit. Yeah, funny, isn't it? And I think like bands like the Beatles and the Stones that were taking the blues back to America, you know, I mean, the Beatles are probably my heroes musically, uh, particularly John Lennon. But there's no doubt about it that, that these guys were brought up and being spoon-fed on on Little Richard and uh, all those great black American blues singers and, and, and songwriters. And, and they the, the, the Beatles would take that and spin it their way and then start writing songs that, to me, were very similar to what was happening in America anyway. Um and I think that's why I love the Beatles. I think they weren't scared to to, to look at that, to look at their, their influences. It's a bit like people sometimes talk about David Bowie and how original uh, Bowie was and stuff. But to me, he wasn't, you know, I learned later on in life that he was really, he was really trying to emulate Anthony Newley because he loved Anthony Newley and, and that's, that's who Bowie's hero was. So all of a sudden, this British icon that was everybody thought was the most original singer-songwriter was actually heavily influenced by Anthony Newley. So everything, I'm not sure it's true, but Eric Clapton apparently once said, there's nothing new. So that's fine. Well, you know, you're correct that we all have our influences and consciously or subconsciously, we bring them to bear, okay? Sure. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Of course, what you'd want to do is to evolve from there and 
become original on your own, but it's hard. Okay. It's really yeah. hard. And it's hard to get the population to accept things that are really new. You know, you mentioned BMG. What are the music labels? What did they always want? They wanted whatever was popular yesterday. Yeah. Whatever was a hit the day before. That's what they wanted. And to bring something new to the scene was always difficult because you're breaking new ground and you know that's it's different. That's all. Of course, yeah. Yeah, and I think that for a band like us, the Silencers, I think there was a lot of originality about the Silencers. There was a lot of things that were completely the Silencers. And I think that when it, when it went to America, the following that, that the Silencers gained or gathered in America were people that actually got and thought, wait a minute, there's these guys do sound like somebody and they do sound a bit like Simple Minds and maybe they do sound a bit... Some some of the things sound a bit punky. Maybe they sound a wee bit like the Cars. Maybe they sound a wee bit like, you know, Crowded House from from New Zealand. Maybe they sound. A bit, but there was definitely an originality about the band, about the silencers, and I think that's why, you know, I was fortunate to be in a band that sold a million records, you know, and 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 was able to travel the world and was was able to to go to France and and become almost a household name. Almost you would walk down the street and people would recognize you every 10 steps. Someone would recognize you. And that, that's a beautiful thing. You guys were the Beatles of Scotland, huh? Well, somebody once called us the Celtic Everly Brothers. <laughs> so Pretty close. Yeah, I would take I would take that. I mean, my God, to be even in the same shoe wear as the Everly Brothers. So, but I mean, I've always been influenced in American music. I've always loved it. As much as I've loved British music. So... I never felt I never felt embarrassed or ashamed to say that I liked an Aerosmith song as much as I liked, or a Cars song as much as I liked a Beatles song. It didn't matter to me. Geography was immaterial. I agree with you on that one. All right. At one point, you left the silences. You went out on your own. What's it been like for you out on your own? And what happened again during the whole pandemic and post-pandemic era for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that I left the I left the band for all the right reasons. There was no big fallout. There was no big... I just decided that, that if if music was an apprenticeship, then I had served my apprenticeship. I'd loved it with the band. It was incredible. We played some incredible shows, headline festivals to hundreds of thousands of people. And, uh, and I just thought, if I'm ever going to do anything on my own, this is the time to do it. So I took a jump. You know, fortune favours the brave. I took a jump and... Um, and I landed reasonably softly, always knowing that it would be difficult to, to regain and retain all the fans that I'd had. But I just I thought I'd put my faith into that. And in between that time, life comes in the way. My wife and I decided we would move to New York, um, where she still lives. Um, and, and, and things, circumstances, different things happened and different things changed. I brought out a first album. The record company that I was with was a great international company. And they went bust during NASDAQ. 9-11 happened. These guys had lots of money. They owned Hollywood records in the States. They owned things like Pokemon. And, and they just went bust. They went bust. They closed down their international offices. So my first solo album, which was at that point being regarded as an international priority, became dead in the water overnight. I was in Switzerland doing a radio show in Switzerland. Uh, and on the evening of being told I was going to be an international priority, 
I levitated back to Paris where I was staying that night. And four, maybe six weeks or maybe three months later, the record was dead in the water. So all kind of lawsuits happened. I then decided I would try and get out of the record deal that I couldn't get out of. And unbelievably, there was a guy who, 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 who I got in touch with. Too long a story. He was a neighbor of Miles Copeland's in Los Angeles. There was a guy called Gordon Hessler, who was actually the director of Alfred Hitchcock. And he said, he knew someone that I knew in a little place called Jersey, where New Jersey had taken its name from, the original Jersey, the small island. In the Channel Islands. The very place. And I was living in the, the Channel Islands. And I got this lovely letter from Gordon Hessler saying, I believe you're trying to promote your music. You've had a difficult time. Someone's passed me on your music. But could I give it to this neighbour of mine? He didn't even know it was Miles Copeland. Could I give it to my neighbour? Because I think he's involved in music. And he gave it to Miles. And I suppose the rest was history. Miles became a manager for six years. We brought out the second album with another French Swiss company. And then they spontaneously combusted. They went missing during the, during the recording process. Did you start to think that there was something about you that made these companies go bust, huh? <laughs> you became toxic well, they, here. Exactly, you know. So Miles and I decided that we wouldn't we would we would do the legal thing and do the proper thing, get them away, give them give them proper and, and, and honorable legal notice, and then move on. So since then, it's a, it's always been a matter for me, Robert, of never giving up, never giving up. Good for you. That's the only way you can do it in life. And, you know, the only good thing or one of the few good things that I find about the whole streaming world these days is that it's taken away the need for record labels. OK, yes. because you can get your music out there and you can get it all over the world and you don't have to rely upon some guy at BMG or wherever. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's a great in industry. I, I mean, I've always said that she's a harsh mistress, the music industry, and that's OK. The, the great. Jimmy Webb, the moon's a harsh mistress. Uh, but I think that she's also been very kind to me and she's gave me a lifestyle. Um, I never wanted to be wealthy. Thankfully, I never was. Uh, I did want to have some form of adoration, not, not, not any false adoration. I, I just wanted people to like what I did and I achieved that. And the last few years, the last maybe 10 or 12 years, including the pandemic, has sort of been catching up from these two record companies that ultimately I think meant the best for me, but they just couldn't do it. So I had I had to try and retrieve, I had to buy my way out of one of the record deals, cost me a lot of money. Um, and, and that kind of, it doesn't put, I wouldn't say it's, it puts you on the back foot. As Springsteen once said, one step forward, two steps back, you know. That's the way that the world works. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. When I started the Follow Your Dream podcast two and a half years ago, we were in the throes of the pandemic. Everything was disrupted and the future was uncertain. Back then, I had only a goal for the podcast, to inspire people to follow their dream, just as I followed my musical dream. So I set forth on a new adventure, 
From that humble start, I'm pleased to say that the podcast has grown exponentially to the point where it now is ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts, has won awards, and has listeners in 200 countries. Imagine that. Each episode takes me and my guest on a world tour to thousands of listeners on every continent. And my guests are spectacular. I've had so many famous and accomplished musicians, actors, directors, photographers, and other creatives. People who followed their dream to success. The podcast is proof of my motto. You're never too old, and it's never too late to follow your dream. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And sign up for our weekly emails, which preview our episodes and much more. The links are all in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. All right, listen, before we get too much further, I want to get into the song fest portion because we have a few of your songs I want to talk about. The first one we're playing right now is A Soft Place to Fall. Well, it's one for the sailor with a steady hand, two for the ship until we reach dry land, till you see the monster on his way. And we Tell me a little bit about that one. Yeah, well, um, the, the original bass player of the Silencers, we were talking about life and the hardships of life. And uh, and he's got a couple of daughters. And he said, you know, sometimes the kids come home to London. They, they live in Europe, these kids, and they come home to London. And um, he said, you know, when they've got troubles, the only thing we ever give them is a soft place to fall. And I thought, oh, wow, what a beautiful thing to say, you know. Uh, about about any situation, but particularly about your children. Whenever they come home, we give them a soft place to fall. I thought, oh, man, and it just stuck with me, and I thought, I'm going to write a song about that, and I did. Fantastic. All right, let's go to the next one. This is Me and You. I hope you know we understand I don't need medication Tell us about that. Yeah, so Me and You was, was again, recorded in New York with Dan Wise, who's a fantastic producer, and then mixed and engineered by Michael Brower, who's wonderful. Uh, Michael Brower's did many, many great albums. He had just finished the Coldplay album, 
first Coldplay album, and then the next project after that was me. So we recorded the album in New York, and this was the first song that I'd written kind of for that album. Uh, sometimes when when hardships in life and difficult things arrive, you have to write about them. So there was a death. My adopted brother had passed away as a young man, and I thought one day I'll write about it, and it was just the right time to write about that song. It was the right time for emotion. It was the, it was the right time to pour that emotion into a song and make it make it a song that people hopefully would would agree with and, and could share. And it became the most popular song. It became that was the that was the song that was going to be the international release for Edel Records for the first album. And as I said to you, the, 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 unfortunately those guys went bust. But um, it's a beautiful song. It's great sentiment. The guys in New York. It was. A lot of guys that were playing with Rufus Wainwright at the time, Jack Petrozelli from New York was playing guitar, Kevin Hupp playing drums, great New York drummer, John Call, I think, was playing bass, fantastic bass player, great cello player, all New York musicians, just wonderful players who made a great album. Terrific. And it is a lovely song. All right, last one. Where are you going to run? When you're waiting. us about that one yeah i mean that was a it's kind of born out of because i think that songs are really social commentary i think they're just commentating on what's happening in the world in a different way rather than being a newscaster for nbc or abc you become you become your own social commentator so you're commentating on things and where you're going to run was about a kid that i saw uh who had came to visit my house one day and he was leaving to go and start a new life somewhere. And I thought, oh my goodness, I wonder if this kid's just on the run, you know, and just running away, you know. And um, and I sat down and played this little loose kind of note, few notes. And then like, as usual, you know, with a song, and you know you're a songwriter, you're a composer. Sometimes a song could be two minutes. Sometimes it could be two years. That song was written in two minutes and it became the last song on on this brand new album of mine, which just came out, and and people love it. The, the you know the journalists that have heard it, and there haven't been that many. I'll be honest with you, it's been a very slow uh, burner, but the journalists that have heard it love it. You know, so listen, you you write songs for yourself, Robert, and then you hope that other people like them. That's a hundred percent right, and words of wisdom. We have been speaking here with J.J. Gilmore. J.J., it's been absolutely a pleasure to talk with you. And I'm still entranced by the idea of a mobile podcast that you're doing. <laughs> I, I want to wish you great success with that and with your music and everything else. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Robert. I really appreciate it. And good luck and to all those lovely Americans. There you go. And now we're going to play that song of mine that started off the episode. It's my song called New York City Groove. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. 
Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Thank you.